everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto eight years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the June 20th, 2023 episode of Unchained. You know it, we know it, they know it. The system doesn't just need an update, it needs a complete rewrite. Web3 offers that rewrite. It allows us to take control back and to truly own what's ours. Visit okx.com slash rewrite the system to learn how. Asia's buzzing and everyone's going to Token 2049 Singapore on September 13th to 14th. Balaji Srinivasan, Mike Novogratz, Arthur Hayes, and 200 others will hit the stage, joining over 10,000 attendees. Visit token2049.com for 65% off with the code UNCHAINED. Link in the description. Buy, trade, and spend crypto on the crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Today's guest is Hayden Adams, founder and CEO of Uniswap. Welcome, Hayden. Thanks so much for having me. It's amazing that Uniswap is onto its fourth iteration already. Let's walk listeners through the evolution of Uniswap from V1 through V3. Sounds great. And before I even say that, I just, maybe you don't, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Unchained was actually the first podcast I ever did. And uh, (laughs) last time we spoke. Yeah. I don't know if I knew, I might've known that. It was so long ago. It was like 2018, wasn't it? Yep. Uh, V1 launched in 2018. And uh, I don't remember exactly when, when we spoke, but it was around then. Yeah, yeah. I, I also don't remember exactly, um, but amazing that it's been five years because it feels somewhat recent to me, which is kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, I'm glad that you made Unchained your first podcast choice. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It was, it was great back then and excited to, to be here now. Um, in terms of like the evolution, I think even what you just said there, like it, in some ways it feels like we think of Uniswap as having been around for a long time um, and, and, and AMMs and all this stuff that we talk about uh, with on-chain trading. But you know, Uniswap has only been around for five years. And before Uniswap, there were other projects experimenting with AMM, but it was like a relatively untested new thing. And going from you know, Uniswap v1, which launched in November 2018, back then it was like, is this a thing? Will this have a place in the world? Will there, like, is there some need for on-chain trading? And is there some need for automated market making? Uh, to today, where Uniswap, you know, trades billions of dollars a day, has you know, there's been over one and a half trillion dollars traded since then um, on the protocol. Like, and it, it has such a an act, like AMMs are actually the predominant way people trade between crypto to crypto assets uh, on chain, right? Limit like back then it was like, does AMM have a role relative to limit orders? And today it's like, oh, do limit orders have a role relative to AMMs? Uh, <laughs> in the space of on-chain trading, which is really interesting. Uh, probably jumping the gun on, on some stuff there. Really, you know, Uniswap V1 built that uh, initially almost as like a, a solo side project. It had a lot of help along the way, 
but you know, essentially was the only full-time person on it, uh, developed it under a, you know, got a grant from the Ethereum Foundation and, and launched it in November 2018. Uh, it got like all this initial excitement and traction in the, in the industry. Uh, I think in part because it really like resonated with people's values in the space at the time. It was kind of the anti-hype. Pro- like there was all these like projects that had set huge expectations, uh, raised huge amounts of money, and then didn't really deliver on the hype. Uniswap, you know, all it had was this small grant. Uh, no one knew about it until it was live and working. And it really resonated with people. And it really like matched like the, the level of decentralization that Uniswap uh, reached, you know, where it was like non-upgradable, um, you know, immutable, permissionless, anyone could create you know, an asset, anyone could add a, create a liquidity pool. It, it, that resonated in the early days. And so it got this initial traction and excitement from, you know, almost like long tail projects on Ethereum. And, you know, so I raised money and formed a company. I was like this, it, just the idea to me had been validated. So I decided to take it to the next step and form the company. And, and just remind there, people, yeah. those original pools were based on that X times Y equals K. Just explain that for people. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not really that, you know, the idea is that in traditional exchanges, you have, you know, limit orders and, and that you're matching up buyers and sellers. Uniswap had this pooled liquidity model where you deposit two tokens into a pool. Uh, you know, they would be paired against each other and you could buy one for the other and sell, you know, you could buy and sell between them and it would just move the price along a curve. And that curve uh, is just X times Y equals K, where there was like a constant, you know, value. And that was how prices were set. It was very simple, uh, very like simplistic, but it worked. And I think that that is like such a key to this whole story is that there was a lot of early, like the, the earliest negative baby feedback that Uniswap received was like, this is too simple and too dumb. Like you can't, you can't just like create a stupid, dumb on-chain trading strategy and expect it to like make, you know, be profitable for people to do or beneficial for people to do. And I think in a, in a way they were right. In a way it was too stu- stupid and dumb to really like, you know, exist forever. But at the same time, it provided like the, the benefits of it offset the downsides of it, if that makes sense. Like the level of decentralization it achieved, the level of like, um, you know, like, like the fact that no one needed to trust anyone else, the fact that anyone could create, you know, anyone could, could create a liquidity pool uh, without having to have like an extreme level of sophistication. Like, yes, it wasn't sophisticated enough for the most sophisticated people to want to come in and participate in it. But it was like unsophisticated enough that anyone could participate in it. And the, the ability for just anyone to create a liquidity pool was so different and new from anything else that was around at the time. Even other early AMMs didn't have an experience where like anyone could come in and create a pool at least even like at the front end level, if it allowed it at a smart contract level. So that was such a big unlock that it didn't matter how inefficient the system backing it was at the time, because no one else, there was no other way to do the things that allowed you to do for certain people. But from there, we spent the next, you know, four or so years, basically building new versions of the protocol, improving it. Um, V2 took it from, V1 basically only allowed you to trade between ETH and an ERC-20 token. uh, And it was, and it was, Kind of a interesting, very opinionated, uh, simple. Like I, it was my first, you know, coding project is one way to look at it, and so it was it was okay, but it wasn't like it wasn't a system on which an entire like industry could could be built to, to put it one way. And so V two really was just like upping like the the architecture, the code quality. You know, it, it did add a few more features. It allowed you to trade any ERC twenty for any ERC twenty, which enabled things like stablecoin to stablecoin trading instead of just ETH to stablecoin. So it added like a few new features. It was just like better infrastructure, uh, easier to interact with, but it wasn't and like just a better code base. And that was sort of what 
going into v, uh, at the launch of V2, probably you saw it was doing a few million dollars a day in trading, maybe like five to 10. And that was in spring 2020, about a little bit over a year after the launch of V1. And that is sort of when things kind of like went crazy. And we had what was called DeFi summer. And Uniswap V2 went from doing like five, $10 million a day in trading in the spring to by the fall, it was doing, you know, it, it had passed a billion dollars a day in trading. There was a token added to the, to the protocol every 10 minutes for the entire summer. And just as a reminder, also, I think that um, Milestone was also reached partially because of the sushi swap vampire attack. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, like there was, I mean, it was growing really fast over DeFi summer as like, you know, Compound had launched and all these other projects had launched their tokens and more tokens were starting to come out. And so it was already accelerating, but then definitely, you know, when, when SushiSwap happened, it, it really did go parabolic at that moment. You know, Uniswap liquidity went from a few hundred million to a few billion and then the daily trading also went up proportionally. And I think what, what, what the reason Sushi was so good for Uniswap was because there was sort of this like chicken egg problem of people like there wasn't enough liquidity to like support the volume to support the liquidity. And we didn't really know how Uniswap would operate at like that scale. And Sushi kind of the, the Sushi vampire attack, because of the way that it was structured, really incentivized liquidity to pour into Uniswap. And the, the plan was to migrate it all at once. But so much liquidity poured into Uniswap that people got to see how it, how it operated at, you know, billions of dollars in scale, as opposed to like, low digit hundred millions and uh, it sort of performed very well. And, and so I think that, you know, even after the sushi vampire attack migration happened, the liquidity didn't really leave Uniswap. I mean, some liquidity did, but Uniswap's liquidity after the vampire attack was much higher than it was before. And definitely the whole, you know, and then after, after all of that, there was even more projects launching and that was like really like a, a pretty kind of like a moment of a lot of change in, in the space um, from we had actually been working on V3 since before the launch of V2, though. We, v, V3's, the earliest ideas of V3 development were like ideas that we'd been playing around with while developing V2. And so even at the time we launched V3, we, ju- we realized concentrated liquidity was like the next step. And I think that for a while, some of that stuff felt like it was a distraction from getting where, to where we knew we wanted to go with V3. I think ultimately I'm glad it all played out and, and it worked out for the best. Um, and it was an exciting time. Uh, but we, we launched V3 about a year after V2 and about six months after the, the whole Sushi uh, saga kicked off. Um, and V3 basically made the protocol a lot more, you know, V2 was a very simple price curve and everyone had to like opt into the single way of, of managing their liquidity and trading it. And it was, you know, somewhat inefficient, uh, but it was like the same for everyone. So it was so simple, anyone could do it. And there was no like competitive dynamics between LPs because they were all kind of like in it together for better, for worse. But I think... The downside was sometimes it was for worse. The, you know, V3 came out. I think that at the time of V3, there was a lot of open questions. Like there was, I think it took a long time for people to understand it. I think people are still kind of wrapping their head around V3, even today. And it came out about two years ago. And, you know, it, it basically just let people set price ranges in which their liquidity existed. And so, uh, you know, in the, in the sort of, you can, it can, you can kind of approximate an order book with it a little bit, like, you can imagine like if you set a, you know, I'm going to trade this token between this price and this price in a very narrow range that looks very similar to, to creating a, li- a limit order. I, I think it's still kind of different. Uh, it, you know, there, there's sort of like a pro rata nature to it where you're still pooled with other people and it's still along a curve, not at a single price. But all that to say, V3 increased like the, it, it essentially increased the capital efficiency. It increased the flexibility for liquidity providers very significantly. Um, but maybe to lead into to where I'm going with V4, like, 
you know, I'd say that V3 was still an extremely opinionated protocol. And what I mean by that is the way that we developed V3, V3 was essentially the best single implementation of an AMM that we could imagine at that time. And I think it did very well. V3 kind of took Uniswap from like, kind of like significant market share to like, you know, today it's like 85, 90% in in on-chain trading on Ethereum. And, uh, has just sort of like completely outperformed uh, the the V2 style pools in terms of you know the 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 share of volume and the efficiency of it but it was like very opinionated the the process of basically designing an AMM in in my experience has been like getting in a room with smart people and just like arguing for hours about trade-offs and minor trade-offs and like it's just like endless bike shedding is is one way to think about it uh, you know and Every single decision we made impacted other things. Other, and it's like things that benefit LPs hurt swappers. Things that benefit active, you know, the increased complexity adds new features, but like makes it harder to integrate and that hurts developers. And every single part of the entire code base was just like a constant series of trade-offs. And I think that that's what's to me really exciting about where the Uniswap protocol can evolve with Uniswap v4 is, you know, to me, Uniswap v4 is about taking, creating a, basically like an AMM platform where people can express their preferences and uh, choose where they want to be in like the AMM design trade-off space. And definitely it adds additional complexity. And there's a lot of things that, that, you know, there's a lot of implications to that. And I think that like people are still wrapping their heads around V3. They're definitely still just wrapping their heads around, uh, around V4. But for me, at least, I think that I feel really confident about it as like the direction for where this protocol should go next. And so I'm, and, and I'm personally really excited about it. You know, the Uniswap protocol has become such a, like, important part of the industry. Like, it, it's, there are quite literally, like, thousands and thousands of teams and projects. There's hundreds of thousands of tokens on, on the protocol. There's tens of thousands of, of projects that are built on top of it. And to me, I, I view Uniswap like I view Ethereum. And it's, like, it's a core infrastructure layer for, you know, Ethereum maybe is a core infrastructure layer for more things, but Uniswap is still like this core infrastructure layer for creating liquidity and, and trading on chain. And it serves all of these different projects. Just one thing is that uh, when you say it's like Ethereum, it's not only Ethereum in those ways, but I feel like this new V4 is also becoming more like Ethereum in the sense that uh, when Vitalik was dreaming up Ethereum, part of the reason was that he was noticing that people were trying to innovate on Bitcoin and the way that they were doing it was adding new features to blockchains. And both of you, so with Ethereum, what he did was, you know, he stripped all that away. It's like a programming language and then anybody can have any idea that they have and upload it to Ethereum. And you're essentially doing the same thing, but for AMMs and you're, uh, I, I don't want I mean, I don't want to describe it, but just very briefly, you're stripping it down. So like other people can be like, oh, I have an idea for an AMM that, you know, does fees this way or that it, you know, does what I don't know what all the different variations are, but it's yeah. like literally the same move. Yeah, definitely. I, I I think that that totally resonates with me. And I think that like I definitely have like looked to Ethereum uh, as guidance for for, you know, what I think is like a good, good project within the within the crypto space. And uh, has like good philosophies behind it, um, you know. It, you know, and, and there are all, you know, there's a lot that can go into that, and there's a lot to yeah. could unpack there. But um, it's definitely like a move towards greater expressiveness and customizability and generalizability. And it's not Turing complete like Ethereum, but it is closer to Turing complete than you know than Uniswap v3, in in that you can express more preferences and uh, do a lot more with it. So aside from that fact that 
you know, you were sort of dictating choices onto developers. Um, there were also actual problems just like with using it and stuff. So what are some of the problems that you wanted to try to solve with Uniswap V4? And what are the features and solutions that you've come up with? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Let's see. So Uniswap V3, like I'd say that for me, some of the most interesting, I'd say that like one very interesting starting place is fees, like liquidity provider fees, not you can ignore the, the other forms of fees of gas fees and governance fees and all that. I'd say that like liquidity provider fees uh, for like the longest time in Uniswap's history, it's always been like, what is the optimal fee? And, you know, how do you set it? And all of these you know, for liquidity providers and the answer has always been like, like the V1, it was like, okay, we're just gonna, you know, we don't want, like, we don't want to introduce some governance system. We don't want to introduce some like, like, let's just make it, you know, 0.3%. And that, that was, that was the number. It was a magic number and it kind of worked, you know, in a way. Um, actually it started out as 0.25% and I was on a plane with Vitalik and I, we were having a conversation and he said, and I was like, oh, I don't know. I'm worried 0.25% might be too low. And he's like, we well, could do 0.3%. And I was like, okay. And I changed the code <laughs> and that's how it happened. That was, that was all the thought that went into it. Um, vaguely looked at, uh, v, V2 kind of had a similar pattern. V3 introduced fee tiers, which was basically like anyone could deploy, you know, you could deploy pools with a bunch of different fee tiers. And the idea here is that like the more sophisticated liquidity provision, the, the, the more trading volume that's going through a pool, probably like uh, very often lower fees are, are better than higher fees. Another thing is like the, the, the volatility of the asset, like in a very volatile asset, you might want, need higher fees to make up for, uh, you know, losses that you might incur for providing liquidity, right? When you're providing liquidity, you are taking on price risk. And the way that you offset those losses is you take, is you earn fees. And so if an asset is very volatile, you usually want higher fees. However, there is like this other thing, which is that like, there, there's, there's different forms of vol- volume. There's some volume that is just driven by volatility. And then there's some volume that is driven by just user demand to trade an asset. And there's papers theorizing around like the optimal way to set fees based purely on volatility. And if you imagine a world where the only trades that exist are arbitrage trades, probably going way too deep on this one very specific thing. But if you, if you imagine a world where like the only uh, trades are arbitrage trades, you can like theorize around like the optimal fee to set. But you don't know how that optimal fee will impact the uh, user's demand for trading into that liquidity that is not driven by arbitrage, but driven by just like a desire to, to trade one asset for another. And, you know, some people think you kind of think of the users as like maybe the less sophisticated and the arbitrage traders as the more sophisticated. So it, it, like any, there is no like single way to set the optimal fee. The only, the only way to do it is in imagining an arbitrage only world. And so in the arbitrage only world, the higher the volatility, but then there's also another factor of gas costs. And the lower the gas fees, actually, the lower the optimal fees for liquidity providers. And that's because the lower the gas fees, the smaller arbitrage trades are worth making. And so if you lower the, ga- the liquidity providers' fees, you have a lot more arbitrage uh, closer to the current price. And so there's sort of like this benefit of having, in, in a lower network fee world, you also want a lower liquidity provider fee world. So there's like all of these, like, inter- like it's, it's kind of a complex situation. And so there are like a lot of interesting ways to experiment with setting it. Sorry, with, with V3, we had like a few different granular fee tiers. Like we had like 1%, 0.5%, 0.3%, and 0.1%, something like that. a few of them. And that allowed people to like better liquidity providers can make their own choices and allocate across them. And that increased the flexibility uh, while fragmenting liquidity a little more. And there's a gas cost imposed. The more liquidity split across liquidity pools, the more gas costs you're wasting to arbitrage between the pools. 
And if I want to make a trade and it's a very large trade, I now need to route maybe some portion of my trade should go to the 0.3% pool, but only up until it moves the trade 0.3%. But then like the remaining should actually now start, or like once the trade, like the price impact has increased beyond, maybe a better example. So if you have imagine a 0.3% pool and a 1% pool, if you make a trade that moves the price on the 0.3% pool more than 1%, you're going to want to start including liquidity in the 1% pool because the price impact of the 0.3% pool is no longer offsetting the the you know the the fee of the 1% pool. And so these are like very fundamental problems, right? Like the more the more pools you have, the more liquidity is fragmented. At the same time, the more like the less you can express your like at the same time like there's no single best way to determine the optimal fee. And the way that you know it works on an order book is just everyone is choosing for themselves and it's very efficient to aggregate that all on chain and or off chain. And it's not very efficient to, to allow anyone to set any fee and aggregate all of that uh, on-chain. And so you kind of need like liquidity to coalesce around certain, certain fee tiers. I'll just say with Uniswap V4, I think one of the most interesting problems is it, it basically just like says like anyone can create any system for how the fee is set. You can continue to do dynamic fees and you, or you can continue, continue to do like static fees. So there probably will still be like 0.3% uh, fee tier pools, but there might be like, and this you know, fee tier moves with volatility and this fee tier and this fee, you know, and, and you can create systems like that as well. You know, I, I think that like, it, it's going to be very interesting to see. Like, I think in, like entire AMMs have been created to just experiment with fee designs. And I think something that's very nice about Uniswap V4 is you actually don't need to create an entire AMM to experiment with fee designs. You can create a fee, a fee like a dynamic fee hook, which is much simpler and easier to do than creating an AMM. And it's much easier to get people to trade into it. And it's, there's much more like, adoption of it. And just explain hook, because, uh, you know, this plays a key role in Uniswap yes. V4. Yeah, Uniswap V4 introduces what we call hooks, which are various points in, you know, every transaction on Uniswap has like, a, there's like a life cycle to a transaction, like, you know, like for a swap, maybe you like send the tokens to the pool, like the price adjusts, and then the pool sends your tokens back. The idea of a hook is that it's arbitrary, like you can insert arbitrary logic. When you create a pool, you can create you can define like the hook logic for that pool, like how, and you can create a hook contract that, that interacts with various points in the, the life cycle of a transaction. And so you could imagine you have a hook that before every swap, it runs some arbitrary logic, or you can have a hook where after every swap, it runs some arbitrary logic or before anyone adds liquidity. And through these hooks, you can basically create, uh, you can also have hooks that, that basically adjust the fee uh, for the pool in real time. And maybe it's doing that by like before the swap, it checks the price and based on the price relative to the previous price, it has some implied volatility number and adjusts the fee up or down based on that, right? That's the type of thing that you can start doing. But at its core, a hook is like an external smart contract that's interacting with the Uniswap protocol. Is that how to think of it? You can think, I mean, that, that's one way to think about it. I, I would, I, it, there's sort of like... Um, how the smart contracts are organized is interesting with Uniswap and we could get up to that a little bit, but generally speaking, you could think of it as smart contract logic that can interact with the protocol at various points within like, not like today, you know, you have transactions that can interact with the pool, but they can only interact like before the entire transaction has happened and after the entire transaction has happened. But there's sort of no way that you can kind of like interject at like points within a transaction. Generally speaking, it's like logic that you're, that, that you're sort of guaranteed will run with every transaction that interacts with that pool. Uh, I actually saw there was a, there was a, I, I listened to like a 30 second clip with, uh, what is it? Chopping block or the, 
where they were talking a little bit about that, like what's different here um, and like, what can you do externally versus within a hook and, and what is like, I think like an example of something that you can do uh, that you can only do with hooks that you can't do today externally is, you know, a, like a, there's a certain, like, so one of the features in Uniswap V2 and V3 is this price Oracle. And for the price Oracle to be, you know, to work, you need a guarantee that it will have, that it will be updated before the first swap of every single block. And to have that type of strong guarantee, you can't do that externally because you could build a router that checks the price before it swaps and, and checkpoints it, but someone else can always interface directly with the pool and avoid updating your Oracle. And so the, the, the cool thing about the, the hook contract or the, the hook design is that you can create a pool that will guarantee the properties of your Oracle in a way that a routing, uh, a hook and a router could never do. That's a, the, an example. I think there are others. Uh, another maybe example, like part of where hooks came from is we had since before V2, we've had this like running idea in the back of our head. And you've probably heard some of the like around like essentially a what, what it would amount to like a back running hook. This idea that like if someone makes a trade that moves the price away from the current market price on Uniswap, that creates a profitable arbitrage opportunity that someone else can capitalize on. And generally speaking, if you're a liquidity, a liquidity provider on a pool, you want, you don't, everyone wants to like internalize as much of the value like, as they can. Like if someone else, like if you're creating a valuable opportunity for someone else, you'd rather take it yourself. And so there has been like the idea floating around for a long time of, well, can we create, can we like have a, you know, at the end of every swap, Uniswap trade, it calls to a smart contract. That smart contract has the right to back run that trade if it like pays some of the, the profits back to the, the swapper. That was sort of like an idea we've been playing, or, li- or liquidity providers, either way. And that was like an idea we'd been like playing around with in our heads for a long time. And, and to make that work, you, again, you need like a guarantee that every swap, otherwise like the people can always, like people won't swap for the router. That, like if there was a router that lets you back, that like if liquidity providers, you know, are depending on an external system to do this back running, then people are just going to trade through a different router that doesn't do that because, you know, they like, so you sort of have this, like, um, this ability to guarantee properties for liquidity providers, for swappers, for, for whatever, for, for external projects that you don't get with, with uh, externally built systems. Uh, the other thing that I'd say is that, like, the smart contract design patterns of building some of these things externally are a lot more complex and messy and inefficient than building them internally with hooks. And so I think that that's, like, another important kind of factor uh, where, like, Definitely, like a lot of things that can be built with hooks can be built externally, but there are fundamental benefits to doing them with hooks in terms of like, there are like, it's like, you know, it's built into the pool. You sort of have like, there are like often efficiencies or better smart contract design patterns that you get there. Just to understand, like, who is going to be contributing these hooks? Like, who develops them? How does it get decided? What gets adopted? It's a little bit like asking who's going to build smart contracts on Ethereum. And it's like, in that like there's probably a lot of people and a lot of different reasons i'd say that like some examples I, for, for one like we've built a few hooks like as even as examples to prove the system that we find interesting and useful so you know one hook that we built is what we call twam uh which is we can get into what that means and what it does but it essentially you know makes it much easier for people to make very large orders on the protocol that execute over a long period of time and we think that that's like an interesting feature. We don't think that, you know, building it as its own custom AMM would be a lot more work and an infrastructure to maintain. And uh, so we, we have it, you know, developed it as a hook. We, we, you know, we built a limit order hook, which we, we find interesting. We built, you know, some price Oracle hooks. So we built a few 
So I'm yeah. sorry, I need to understand this because so the time weighted average market maker, it's yes. for people who it's probably like a whale who wants to make a huge order that would typically move the price a lot that would cost them a lot. So what they want to do is they kind of want to chunk their purchases yep. out or sells or whatever out in a way that it moves the price less, which makes the trade more profitable for them. So one question is like, uh, for these hooks, um, is it that the person who wants to do this time weighted, you know, average, um, you know, transaction, are they um, saying, okay, for this liquidity pool, as I do my transaction, I'm choosing this hook? Or is it that there are certain liquidity pools where they say, we have this hook. So every time you use our pool, it will always time weight average your transaction. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you so, see? Yeah, no, yeah. That's, a, that's a good question. Happy to unpack okay. this a little bit. So the way that I put it is that first off, the, you know, when a pool is the, the, the person who determines the hooks for a pool, like when a pool is deployed, the deployer of that pool gets to choose what hooks are you know, set for that pool. Like the, the pools for a hook are determined at pool creation. And so liquidity providers choose to deposit liquidity to pools with specific hooks on them because they think that those hooks will like be, you know, are, are where they should provide liquidity for various reasons. TWAM orders are orders that people would make externally when they, they people would submit TWAM orders to pools that support TWAM would that have a TWAM hook because they want that feature and functionality. Liquidity providers would provide liquidity to this pool because they actually get fees from TUM orders that execute through it. Yeah, but then one other question. So, because um, you said like a liquidity provider can have multiple hooks on their liquidity pool. So is it that um, I might use the same pool, but I'm not doing a TWAM tra- transaction, but I'm using a different hook that is also available on that liquidity pool? So meaning like, because what I, I guess what I'm trying to yeah. ask is, is everybody who's making a TWAM ordered like all doing it on the same pool? Or is it that yeah. um, multiple different types of transactions are all happening on the same liquidity pool, depending on how many uh, yeah. different hooks they have? TWAMs are like adding new order types to existing liquidity pools. So every single pool yeah. is Uniswap v3. Like every single pool has like the built-in logic and functionality of Uniswap v3. I can provide liquidity. Uh, other people can swap through it. You can create hooks that like check if you're, if you're providing liquidity in some way and prevent you from doing it. And so like you can add restrictions through hooks. But generally speaking, if you imagine a pool and then someone adds a TWAM hook and an Oracle hook, like you can still, it's still Uniswap V3. You can still provide liquidity and swap like normal. But you would also would have this option of submitting additional, a different transaction type to that same pool, which would be additional, you know, fees earned by liquidity providers on that pool. So like someone, like I can make a regular swap on this pool. I can also do a TWAM order on this pool. Liquidity providers provide liquidity to this pool because they earn fees on both swaps and on TWAM orders. Okay. Uh, so basically yeah. hooks are optional for users. Yeah. Hooks are optional for users in, in a sense. You can have hooks that like constrain the logic of a pool. You can have a hook that says you can only provide liquidity to this pool if it's full range liquidity. And so you can like prevent people from like, you can add hooks that like almost like remove features to some degree. Like you could have hooks that add additional constraints to a pool, the same way you could add a hook that adds a new feature. But generally speaking, uh, a, a hook that adds a new order type is an optional order type to use. It doesn't necessarily mean you can't use the other order type. And generally speaking, unless you have hooks that explicitly modify uh, the functionality, it still is like the base, the base system is still Uniswap uh, v3 and concentrated right. liquidity. Okay, so in a moment, we're going to talk about more examples of hooks, but first a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. We've said it once and we'll say it again. 
the system doesn't just need an update, it needs a complete rewrite. Web3 offers that complete rewrite because it extends beyond just money. Staking, NFTs, DeFi, Earn, Web3 has become a world of its own. But who has time to juggle between five different crypto apps? OKX Wallet is one of the best apps for everything Web3. It allows you to store, trade, earn, and manage your crypto and your NFTs across 60-plus blockchains, all in one place. And now, it's one of the only self-custody wallets that doesn't require a C phrase. There's just no other wallet that's as powerful, yet so simple. Give it a try at okx.com web3. Join over 10,000 attendees for this year's biggest crypto event at Token 2049 Singapore on September 13th to 14th. Sandeep from Polygon, Eric Wall, Chris Berniski, and over 200 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential for an unforgettable experience ahead of the Formula One Grand Prix race weekend. Singapore will transform into a crypto hub for a week from September 11th to 17th, with over 300 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Builders and investors at the bleeding edge of innovation will drive an agenda that covers the ever-evolving regulatory landscape, the convergence of crypto and AI, Web3 gaming, NFTs in the metaverse, DeFi, scalability, interoperability, and many more. Visit token2049.com for 65% off regular tickets with the code UNCHAINED. Link in the description. Join over 80 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, trade, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere and get rewarded at every step. Up to 5% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions, and zero annual fees. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Back to my conversation with Hayden. So we talked about this TWAM uh, hook, which you guys created. Are there any other examples that you feel will be either common and that you're either creating? And we also, I think, meant to address who it is that will be contributing the hooks and how they get adopted. Yeah, I think that's a all great, all great topics. I'd say that like one other maybe interesting hook example is just, and again, this is something that like people have tried to do in, in other ways, in external ways, but like uh, you could definitely have you know, at any given moment, a lot of the liquidity pool, like a lot of the liquidity in a pool is not being used. It's just sitting idly. And so you can imagine, you know, you can imagine hooks. And, and this is another example of something that is very tough to do externally because people have tried to basically keep out of range liquidity in lending pools. And then like every, as the price starts to approach, like, so you could imagine an important property of Uniswap is that like, it is like, it is like solvent. Right. Like you need a guarantee. Like that is an important property. You need sort of a guarantee that like liquidity that you expect it to be in the pool will be like available when it's needed. And with externally built systems, you kind of rely on people to frequently like update their system. Like if, if you have a system where some liquidity is like elsewhere, but you need it for a given swap, you need to have like, like there's all these like, you need, you need to have people that are like managing systems that are like pulling liquidity and, and like every like 10 minutes or something. And then like if the price moves too fast, suddenly it's not available. The point being that like with hooks, all liquidity that's not in the current narrow price range can be stored in other contracts doing other things. But then in real time, if a price moves the price outside of, you know, like to a point where it needs additional liquidity, you could just like pull the liquidity from those other systems in real time, you know, uh, basically on demand within within a swap. Um, So I think that's like an interesting category people have talked about, like 
you know, it's very tough to create pools right now for things that are like look like, you know, like the wrapped staked ETH uh, or like very tough to create pools for like fees that uh, for, for pools for anything. Yeah. And so I think for like interesting hook patterns will, will allow you to have like pools that are like earning yield in other places, which are kind of interesting. I do think that like experiments with fee designs are one of the most important ones and will probably be one of the most used ones. Uh, there are a whole bunch of other ones. I'd say that like things around like internalizing MEV for like leaking less value, just leaking less value out of pools generally and, and um, are, are pretty interesting. But so I'm sure you've heard, you know, the chatter about all this because I think so many people, when they heard this, the number one thought was, how do you keep this secure? And, you know, like when I was writing my other book and I wrote about the Dow hack, like something that I learned, and I don't know if this is still true, but the Dow hack occurred because of an interaction with an outside contract. And I believe that um, this is generally kind of a dangerous thing for any smart contract to have like this external contract interact with it. So how do you prevent people from adding like maliciously designed hooks that are, for instance, meant to be rug pulls or in general, how does the security of these hooks get vetted? Yeah, I think that it's good to look to Ethereum again, uh, in part for this answer. And I'll, I'll unpack it more, but like, you know, Ethereum isn't good because you can't create unsafe smart contracts. Ethereum is good because you can create safe smart contracts. And I'd say that like, it is somewhat similar with, with hooks, like the same way that like today people can create tokens that are unsafe. People can create tokens that are safe. And like, uh, the same way that even like these problems right now, like, like, you know, we talked a little bit about like things can be that are, can be done internally can also be done externally. Like that's also the case for like things that like unsafe hooks can also be, you know, managed by creating unsafe tokens and people create, you know, and so I think that like, what's really important here is actually that hooks make it easier to experiment in AMMs in safe ways. Um, and definitely like how front ends interact with pools you know, uh, are, are a little bit different, right? Like maybe, and and how users interact with pools, right, might be a little bit different. Um, but generally speaking, the, the core thing here is that like the, cool, the good thing about hooks is you can create a safe hook and you can verify a hook is safe and it is easier to create a safe hook than it is to create an entire from scratch safe AMM. And so I'd say that like how we handle what hooks appear to users in our interface right? Might be, you know, might be different even from what other people do with other interfaces. But I'd say that like, I would not, you know, in, in our own products, right? We wouldn't want to expose, you know, random LPs to pools that have hooks that we don't know what they are and what they do. So then are is there some process for adding hooks that goes through like some kind of central gatekeeper to make sure it's all safe? So it's, it's kind of like saying, is there a process for deploying smart contracts? Not really, but there is a process for choosing what smart contracts we, like the same way that like aggregators, right? have, they're trying to create as many, aggregate as many liquidity sources as they can, but they're only going to aggregate a liquidity source that they deem is safe for their users. And so there's no, like, anyone can create a hook to do anything. Uh, Some hooks might not need a front end. Some hooks might, like, be involved in the niche operations of some specific protocol. We don't need to verify it because it's not meant for our users. It's meant for a different project and their own users. Uh, But for us, you know, we're going to, you know, for our liquidity provision interface, we're going to, like, you know, uh, as as hooks are developed and as as uh, you know people create liquidity and pour them into hooks, we're gonna you know as hooks are kind of we're, we're gonna like audit and verify and whatever like hooks meet our security bar and have some level of usage, we're gonna like you know try to expose those to our users. But the cool thing is that like any like, so anyone it's completely permissionless to create a hook, but it's not advisable to 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 tell your users to go into a unaudited hook 
Uh, in fact, it's extremely inadvisable. You probably should never, if you're operating a front end or if you're building a front end, you should definitely not just expose every possible pool with every possible hook without any, you know, consideration. Okay. So essentially every front end is deciding which hooks get exposed to their users. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. For, for, for pools that, that even need front end, and, you know, some pools don't maybe don't even need front ends, but yeah, generally speaking, uh, you know, it's kind of up to front ends to decide the same way that it is up to front ends to, you know, decide what liquidity sources they, they integrate or what other pr- or what protocols they integrate. It's, you know, it's going from a DEX to a DEX, you know, it's like going from a decentralized exchange, like protocol to like a just like almost like a decentralized exchange platform. And so not every possible implementation will be safe, but I'd, I'd say that like, maybe again, can reference that, that one, like something that came up on, on the, the, again, I watched like a two minute clip, but uh, I thought they were very interesting uh, topics, but uh, one of the things that, that came up was like around like this idea of there, maybe there being like two types of like, there's like kind of default configurations and then like scary everything else. I'd say that it's, <laughs> it's going to be a little bit more complicated than a little bit more like of a spectrum than that. I'd say that like, there's probably a default configuration that like looks almost identical to Uniswap V3, uh, right? Like you can do Uniswap V3. Maybe the most popular configuration actually might be Uniswap V3, but removes the Oracle, which saves gas, right? So because one opinionated choice we made in Uniswap V3 V3 and V2 was adding this Oracle. And the Oracle adds a gas cost for every swapper to create this public good of a price Oracle that can be used in external systems. But some people might not want to pay that cost. And so maybe the most used hook will actually be zero hooks and it, that alone will be better than V3 because it's like <laughs> cheaper for certain people. Um, but, you know, I think that there are also going to be like a wide spectrum of like, I think that there's going to be a lot of development, a lot of innovation across the ecosystem. And over time, hooks will be developed that modify the pools in ways that benefit people. And they'll be tested and they'll be audited and they'll be like, you know, and, and as more and more are created, they'll, you know, like they'll start to like, be ex- more, more of them will start to be exposed to people. So it's not going to be like two worlds of like, like no hooks, default configuration and like any hook, oh, super scary. There's going to be like a whole middle ground of like hooks that have started to like gain some, you know, have been battle tested hooks that have been like, you know, do, like it might be that like there's 10 hooks that are used, like there might be a power law distribution. Maybe a few hooks will be like massive unlocks for the ecosystem and a lot of pools will use them. And, you know, and then there will be a long tail of hooks that like, are used only in a few pools or in niche situations or for niche specific user projects and front ends. It's kind of like tokens, right? Like the tokens kind of have a power law of usage. There's like, but there's a massive long tail and, and uh, it's not really like, Oh, there's three good tokens and everything else is like danger territory. Don't touch it. It's like, there's like a, you know, there's a spectrum, spectrum and, yeah. and we, we, you know, we're in front, it's up to front ends and, and users to like, you know, think about how they, they interface with things. And it's so one one question, um, because these hooks can be used across multiple liquidity pools, and we've seen in the history of crypto that there are many times when things that are audited end up having vulnerabilities in them. And so what if, you know, I don't know, like 20% of all the liquidity pools have this one hook in it that ultimately, uh, it, you know, you guys realize that there's some kind of bug. I, as far as I understand, like once you deploy, it's out there. And I think it's the same for the hooks. So then what happens? Do you like quickly whip up another version of Uniswap that like d- doesn't allow this hook and then try to get people to migrate? Or like, I, I don't even know how that affects things. Do those liquidity pools just decide we're going to abandon and deploy new ones? Or I, I don't know what you do in a situation like that. What are your thoughts? You can start, you always can start with like the base case, right? Like, the, the security of like a Uniswap, like it's it's just kind of like what happens if there's a bug in Uniswap V3. Like all, it's like right now all V3 pools like use the exact same logic, 
And it's been very well battle tested. People now feel pretty secure in it. Like I can tell you while, while we tested it, like harder than anything we've ever tested before, like at the launch time, it was still scary as, as the developer because yeah, you know, but wasn't never there really a know. bug like announced the other in, day? I meant to look this up. In V3? I heard, yeah, in V3. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I know the thing is processed like <laughs> one and a half trillion in volume. I, I don't think that there are any major bugs that can cause any, oh, any maybe major, not. Yeah. Somebody said this, but yeah, now I, there, I don't really see. Maybe it's referring to a bug in V4, which is reasonable. There, there was a bug, yeah, user bug report, which, you know, part of the build, oh. uh, build, in, Repu- uh, build in public. Um, someone had found a bug in V4. I, I will mention that V4 hasn't even been code frozen, let alone audited. And sort of bugs are expected at this stage, right? Part of the idea of like opening it up this early. You know, I'm sure we would have like eventually caught that bug and it would have made it through auditing, but it's actually much better and faster to have people out in the wild discover them and report them and fix them. Uh, so this is that's kind of relating to the building in public thing. Uh, I'd say that generally speaking, the kind of idea of a hook that is unsafe is very similar to like an AMM that is unsafe, right? People can build, you know, if people wanted to experiment with new functionality in AMMs today, they would build a new AMM from scratch. The surface area for doing that experimentation is much scarier, right? You, they, in that world, you have to audit the entire, you don't just have to audit a hook and a limited constraint of things. You have to audit the entire system. So if you want to create some new AMM functionality, right, if you want the base case of Uniswap with no new functionality, then you can use no hooks. Uh, if you want to add functionality, the surface area of what you can build with a hook is much more constrained and it's much less likely to have a bug. And it's much less likely to, you know, to, to have a security vulnerability. Um, and, and definitely there's like, it's, it's not impossible for a hook to be unsafe, but it's easier for a hook to be safe. Like what, what hooks are replacing is like custom logic and AMMs or externally built things. And those things are just as likely to have vulnerabilities, if not significantly more likely, right? The things that hooks replace are either like things that are built externally to pools that try to like add on additional logic to it or things or entire new AMMs. And both right. of those are much riskier than building a hook. So to me, it feels like a significant security upgrade for, for people that want new logic. I totally get that. But can you just play out my scenario? Like if that did happen, what would you do? If, if there was an unsafe hook. And it, but if it was one that was popular, like, you know, affected a huge percentage of the pools. I mean, I think like an unsafe p- hook is the same as like an unsafe AMM implementation for the pools that use that hook. So like definitely like you wouldn't need to migrate liquidity to a new version of the protocol. You would need to like withdraw liquidity from the, the, those hooks. And if you wanted the same functionality, deploy a new hook that fixes the bug. Like you could migrate to a new pool. Like you don't need to exit V4. You just need to exit the pools within V4 that, that have those hooks um, in, in that world. And also cut off any, any way in which other pools might interact with those. I, yeah, I think that like generally speaking, like there, there's like, Today, right, in Uniswap, there's like external, like the, the accounting logic is partially just using like separate smart contracts. And so each smart contract is keeping track of its own balances and they don't interact with each other. There's definitely like, in V4, there are like all liquidity pools exist in a single contract. And so I think that th- that aspect does, um, I think for some people, you know, evoke like, oh, is there like some sort of like contagion type of, of possibility across pools? Oh, right. But I'd say that like, I don't know, if maybe that wasn't, wasn't what you were getting at, but like, I'd say that like that, probability i'd say it's still like if there's a bug in uniswap v3 it affects all pools and so like you still have the same like a bug will affect everything and so in v4 a bug would mean that like our accounting logic is broken that prevents pools from like you know certain interactions like it's sort of like it's like a similar class to like to me like a you know the ability for pools to have contagion between them would be a similar class of bug to like v3 having a bug that like you know it's like fundamentally broken 
generally speaking, like first, like there have been other projects that have done singleton style designs, right? Balance of V2 has been out for many years. Before Um, we, before you go into that, make sure describe singleton. Like, yeah. And I totally forgot because yes, in Uniswap V3, you had a a new contract for every pool. It was expensive. Now you're going this singleton contract route. So describe what a singleton is. Yeah. Singleton is just that all, all pools live within a single smart contract. And that makes it much today when you do a trade that routes across many pools and has many interactions, the, the sort of uh, need for com- pools to communicate with each other, tokens to be transferred between pools directly, that adds a lot of gas cost. And, with, you know, and the cost of deploying a pool involves creating an entirely new smart contract. Um, so with Singleton, the cost of deploying a new pool is just like updating a little number within a smart contract. And so the gas cost of deploying pools goes down 99%, which is, which is pretty nice, uh, approximately, you know, um, code isn't frozen, so you can't really promise gas benchmarks. And then um, the, co- the cost of trades that route across many pools, all like internal transfers between pools, you don't have to really pay nearly as much gas cost for them because it's like updating internal balances instead of transferring them between smart contracts. And so ultimately, the p- purpose of this is to create great, much greater gas efficiency when routing between uh, multiple pools and to, much, and to significantly lower the gas cost of deploying pools as well. And okay. So yeah. yeah, because you're right. When I framed my question to you about if there's a malicious hook, I was thinking about the different pools as being s- different smart contracts, but you're right. Thank you for reminding me it's a singleton. So then that yes. makes it feel even more alarming to me, yeah. but I, why are yeah, you I, I, seemingly not very alarmed? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that this is one of the reasons why we like really benefit from being in this ecosystem where a lot of development is happening and like, and like we've got, we've, you know, even like seeing that like Balancer did it and like it has worked for a long time for them has has given it additional confidence. But I'd say that like, generally speaking, like, you know, these, these smart contracts, like they're, they're open source today. Like they're, they're, they need to be very well tested and they need to be, you know, very well audited. And uh, we've seen, you know, other projects have done similar designs. I mean, like, Generally speaking, we need to like, yeah, like you need to like test it like a spaceship, right? Like it's not, but at the same time, like that was already the case. Like you could have separate pools and you'd still need to like, if like V3 was like also terrifying in its own way, because it was like a complex smart contract code base. And the probability of there being like, you know, a bug in Singleton is not significantly higher than the probability of there being, having been a bug in V3. And I'd say that the kind of process one of the one of the reasons i'm really excited about this like slower build and public rollout process is it gives a lot more time for a lot more eyes on the code uh before it goes out so it's like an additional layer of security uh from that and go into detail on that so like you know you just made an announcement about v4 but you didn't actually deploy it which is what you did previously when you had a new version so you've now publicized the code so what are the steps before you actually deploy yeah, I mean, I'd say the steps right now, there's, there's no specific timeline. The steps right now is like, we put, it, you know, we, we put out a vision for what we think Uniswap V4 should be. If we were, like, if we were to follow a V3 style path and we hadn't put it out, like what we'd do from now is we'd probably spend like several months cleaning up the code base and improving it and optimizing it. What's happening now is that uh, it's, it's public. There's like a time for people to read and digest the code base. Would-be integrators, would-be hook builders, people who have like experience with AMM design, People have an opportunity to look at the code base, uh, think about our vision for it, give, you know, e- we have contribution guidelines uh, in the GitHub repo. People can open issues and with, with things that they think are good about, or, you know, need to, should be changed or, or, or are bad about it. They can, if there are open issues that, that, you know, they can create, they can write the code themselves and create pull requests and, and propose modifications to the code base. 
They can, you know, look for bugs. They can fix documentation. All of this has already started to happen. People have already started, you know, finding bugs, finding optimizations, opening, opening issues. And it's like massively accelerated how fast certain things have been like, like we would have eventually probably, but it would have been like a much longer process. And I'd say that there are a few things that might factor into when this thing actually launches. I'd say that one thing that probably factors in is like definitely you need like several months of it being public, I think, to like really adequately have time for people to give their input, uh, find, discover optimizations, discover bugs. Um, obviously, there'll be a... Uh, so, so that's part of it. There is a kind of interesting aspect where this singleton system we created is combined with this other thing that I don't need to really get into called flash accounting, which is really just how we do the logic for the accounting logic um, in a way that like is more optimal for routing across many pools. And, and, the, and that the, the optimal form of this, like this, the way that we handle singleton in the accounting logic of creating all, keep, keep, keeping all pools solvent and efficiently routing across them is made mo- significantly more optimal by an upgrade coming Ethereum upgrade, uh, EIP eleven fifty three, and it was you know it's slated for include for inclusion for the Cancun hard fork. It's a you know very like it's not only useful for us; it's useful for many other projects in the space. It's a very cool upgrade that just makes it cheaper to up you know to to temporarily store things within smart contracts. Right, transient storage. It's just about it's like a temporary form of storage, meaning that it's like similar to like a flash loan where you can borrow something as long as you pay it back off the end of. The transaction uh, transient storage is just you can use storage as long as you delete it by the end of the transaction in the world where you do that the cost to ethereum for temporary storage is much lower the cost on an ethereum node for temporary storage is much lower than the cost for permanent storage um kind of intuitively maybe makes sense and because you know that's one thing that the nodes all have to update and store something new forever and and the other one you know nodes don't need to actually update it they just need to like verify the logic and so that upgrade makes Uniswap you know, v4 significantly more efficient, and in my opinion, it probably should not be deployed until after Uniswap you know, so, until after transient storage uh, goes live on Ethereum. And then there are some modifications that would need to happen to the smart contract at that point to integrate with transient storage. So, if you were to like give a ballpark estimate of when you might actually deploy, what would you say now? I say that like essentially, what you need is you need to you know there's several months of community input and feedback. Then there's probably like, as the code starts to ossify, hopefully, you know, it's probably like uh, in, in the world where the community kind of goes with like post, post transient storage, which, which I think is very likely because it's just much more optimal. Probably it would be like a few months after Cancun hard fork uh, at the earliest, because you kind of need time to like integrate with, with transient storage. And then after that, freeze the code and then go through an auditing process. And so you, you don't really want to audit the code too much until the code is frozen. You don't really want to freeze the code until you've made any modifications. If the transient storage, you know, so, so I'd say that like, if the, you know, Cancun hard fork happened in September, and I don't know if it will, um, but it might, um, then maybe it could go live in like November, December, something like that. That could be a timeline, but I, but I don't know. It's not really fully up to me. It's like, there's going to be like a social, you know, there's been a lot of conversation on social consensus. Uh, I think there'll be a little bit of like social kind of, uh, convergence on 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 what is what makes sense to do here. All right. So I'm sure you've also seen, in addition to the chatter about potential security issues with 
um, Uniswap v4 that people also are talking about the new business license, which um, this appears to have happened after the sushi swap incident when, you know, famously a copy of the code and did a fork and did this vampire attack on Uniswap, as we discussed. And I wondered, you know, after that, you went to this two-year license where um, people could not use the code for two years. They could see it, but not use it. And with this version, you've extended that to four years. Why did you decide to go with um, a, a business license of that length? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I think that like, there's also been like kind of general chatter around like, what is open source? What is source available? And I think that like, there's definitely like definition. And, and I think that like, definitely B, BUSL is, is like, you know, different from GPL and, and MIT. And I think that like, people say that's source available, not open source is like fair, like totally fair. And like, you know, I don't think that there was any like intention to like muddy the language there on our, on our part. Okay. Yeah. People... Yeah, it took issue with the tweet that says we've open sourced v4. I, I think that like source of, open sourced is like a verb. Source available isn't, but but we've made source available I, again. It's, it's fair. I, I think it's fair. There wasn't like an intention in that. I I do think that BUSL, for what it's worth, is a little bit categorically different from other you know types of proprietary licenses in in a pretty meaningful way. And I think there's a reason that it has had significant. Definitely, like we were one of the first projects to use it, but many other projects use it now today. Um, and it, and I do think it's like categorically different than, than, you know, a fully proprietary license. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the way BUSL works is that after some amount of years, it, it sort of is like forced to go GPL. Uh, it's guaranteed to be GPL and it can only be accelerated. It can't be extended. And that GPL is, uh, when projects can use your code. G, GPL is copy left, which the GPL means that like, yes, anyone can fork it. Uh, but they also have to go open source. It's sort of a, a, there's like two types of open source. It's like, you know, like, like GPL is kind of like the viral form of open source where like anyone can integrate it, but they also have to become open source. Is that also the term copy left GPL and copy left? Yeah, is, yeah. Are they, okay. And then, and then MIT, like anyone can use in any way and they, they don't need to open source. So for an MIT code base, someone can integrate it into their project and, ha- you know, have that project be closed source. And so it's not like viral in the same way. I'd say that, you know, what's interesting about BUSL is that it's like guaranteed to eventually be open source, right? So after four years or at four years or earlier, V4 will be GPL. So there's like sort of like a, there's like a time window for which it is proprietary and it's like fixed at start and it can only be accelerated. So both Uniswap Labs and Uniswap Governance can independently, you know, you know, uh, grant like additional licenses or, um, and governance can actually shorten the, 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 the period of time for which it is, for which it is, uh, open source, um, or sorry, what, for, or until, it, until it goes, yeah. until it shortens right. the BSL time and makes it full GPL. Um, I, I will say that like a lot of the like early, I think open source, first off, we're like massive open source fans here. Like almost everything we do, our wallet fully open source, which is more than, more than most wallets for what it's worth. Um, our, our web app fully open source, you know, Uniswap V3, which was BSL two years ago is now GPL and fully open source, Uniswap V1, V2. Uh, the things that we've built have been forked thousands of times. We've benefited from those forks. We've like, you know, benefited from the innovation that's happened on those forks. And we're, we're I think we're, we're really big fans of it. I do think that like some of the like early, like open source kind of philosophy didn't necessarily factor in this like world of crypto where you have like, like 
within days, economically incentivized, you know, thousands of economically incentivized forks. When, there was a period of time where there was probably like 20 Uniswap V2 forks per, per day. Um, <laughs> and they were all creating incentives. And they were all somewhat low quality as well. And so I think that the, the idea of like BSL is a little bit like, one, I think that like, first off, it's in part an acknowledgement that maybe it's not just just labs that should make this decision. So uni holders actually do have, there's an ENS subdomain that is like uniswap-license.uniswap.e that governance controls directly. And if they want to like modify, like if they want to make it GPL, there could be a vote today. So part of it is like going beyond labs, other, other stakeholders can, can have a, a say in this decision, um, which, which is interesting and, and kind of an innovation in, in licensing on its own, right? Um, and I'm sorry, you said the token holders can do that? Yeah, there, there's a, the, the gov- Uniswap governance directly controls an ENS name, uniswap.eth. And there are subdomains to that ENS name that can be updated by governance votes. And the official license of Uniswap v4, if you read the text, says, you know, the, the change date, the change date is when it goes from uh, BSL to GPL, um, is, uh, you know, four years from now or sooner at any date specified by the text in this ENS file. Uh, and so governance can actually directly vote to shorten that if it wants to. Um, so part of it is like, maybe this isn't even just our code base. Maybe this is like a community's code base and, and they can decide um, uh, if, they, if they want it to be forkable sooner. Um, but, but how did you come up with four years after you already did I the see. two years? Because the two years was kind of controversial, but now you've yeah. doubled it. So why? Yeah. yeah, I think that like, I think that, you know, the two years, look, partially, I think that the two years, like there were probably like voices with like, I think that like, first off, it, the license kind of like worked pretty well in a sense where like it prevented a bunch, like a lot of low quality forks from happening super early on. Uh, I am interested to see how people build on top of V3 um, at, at this point. But at the same time, I think that like, I, I don't know, I, I kind of think that gov- that decision could, should also be up to like the broader community and ecosystem. And I think that like, there were definitely, uh, you know, concerns with the community around like maybe this should have gone on for a little bit longer. And uh, I think one thing that was really interesting is that we actually, one of the reasons we chose two years is that we thought anyone could rebuild this in two years. Turns out no one could. And so I think that three years is interesting uh, as well, uh, or four years is interesting as well. I think it's partially is just like a decision you can't reverse. So I'd say that like you can always, we can always, you know, it can always be shortened through a governance vote from four to, to three to two to one, but you can never extend it. And so the thought was that like it was kind of successful for the Uniswap community, uh, the the BS, BUSL license, and I think it's a big reason why a lot of other projects have adopted it. Did that issue with the wormhole thing on deploying to BNB? I don't remember how what the whole thing was. It was like you guys wanted to deploy there, and then there was this issue about the bridge and blah blah blah, and then it was like getting close to the deadline of the two years, and then you were worried that somebody else would yeah. deploy Uniswap on BNB. Uh, Did all that play a role uh, in trying to extend it beyond two years? No, I, I actually barely follow. I, I thought I, I barely actually followed that that one. I, I funny enough, I I'd say that like um, there definitely were. I'm trying to remember the situation. I think that like definitely there were like governance votes on the BNB chain deploy in part because the license was going to expire and there was some desire within the community. I say just maybe when you say you, I'd say that it wasn't. I actually wasn't like you know. It was, but um, okay. uh, but yeah, there were there were like proposals, um, governance proposals that were voted on, uh, and there there was like a timing consideration uh, mentioned in those proposals. Um, but no, I, I don't think that that was like the the you know sole influence. I think it's more just about like maybe just in everything in V four design we like kind of flavor, fa- favored some level of like flexibility and optionality, and like the the sort of 
period of, of BUSL uh, is like irreversibly in one direction and not irreversible in the other direction. And so, you know, if, if the community really like does not, if, and again, there's sort of like different communities, right. But like if the Uniswap community doesn't like the four year license, they can, there, there can be a vote to shorten it. There can never be a vote to extend it. So that's like yeah, the, but the mo- kind of the core mostly for PR reasons. It's not like they literally couldn't extend it. It's just that. If, no, no, they, they legally can. Uh, there's no oh, the really? license. Is, like the license is no revert. Like it legally cannot be reversed uh, uh, in four years, no matter what the vote, ha- no matter what the community votes on. It can never. It is guaranteed to be GPL, and that's why I think that like, what I say when it's like when I say BUSL is like categorically different than GPL. Okay, is that it's like or sorry, not than GPL. Obviously, it is, but then then like a different proprietary license because it's like forced to go GPL uh, after you know, and so there's nothing I can do or anyone can do to make this code proprietary beyond four years from now. Um, okay, I see. So I also want to address another thing that people have been discussing. Um, yeah. There was some chatter that Uniswap kind of borrowed some features from CrocSwap. Initially, people were using stronger words like plagiarize, but once I dug into the details, it's more like maybe it was inspired by is perhaps the more exact phrasing. Um, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity to address any of those criticisms or just clear up what happened. Yeah. I'd say that like, generally speaking, definitely there was no, no plagiarism. In fact, a different, a different protocol recently accused us of plagiarism. And then uh, because they thought that the, that the code was written because they like looked at the, like a commit that showed it 11 days ago. But if you actually look at the real commit history that extends from before it was open sourced, our our implementation happened a year before their implementation. So this was not CrocSwap thing, but there was another there was another thread that came out. But um, definitely no plagiarism. I'd say that like generally speaking, like there's this funny conversation that happens, which is like, who invented Uniswap? That's that's a really good question, right? Because um, some people say I invented Uniswap. Um, some people say Bancor, Bancor, the Bancor team says the Bancor team invented Uniswap. Um, some people say Vitalik invented Uniswap. Some people say you know. Um, some people say that uh, Alan Liu from Gnosis, he, he wrote a, a blog post that inspired some of Uniswap work. And some people say Alan Liu invented Uniswap. Another, you know, interesting person that people say invented Uniswap, uh, this would be like, I believe, Tarun. Uh, Tarun answer would be like this math economics professor in the 1970s invented Uniswap. And like the, and the, the, the real, reality is that like, you know, everything is built on top of everything and everything is like, and uh, also, and there's like two different ways. Sometimes you like, you know, you, you look to inspiration and like, I say that like, even like seeing how like balancer handled balancer V2 in the singleton, like did like make us feel a little bit better about singleton as a design pattern. And, and it wasn't, we, the way we implemented is actually very different from the way they implement it for what it's worth. Like we have a pretty different approach to it. Um, I like, I, I, there's a lot of protocols out there. There's been Many protocols, I've heard of CrocSwap, but there have been many protocols that have claimed Uniswap plagiarized them that I haven't even heard of before until I've seen the tweets claiming plagiarism. So I, I say that, like, generally speaking, like, good ideas, like, like, evol- like, some things are, like, kind of, like, convergent. Like, if something is a good pattern, like, multiple people sometimes converge on it as an idea at the same time. Uh, additionally, like, sometimes, like, you know, sometimes you do hear things and they, they make their way into the common sphere and you think about them and you they influence what you're doing. I think good protocols do take the best patterns that they see around them for sure. It's not plagiarism to like, you know, learn from learn from the industry you're operating in. Um, uh, you know, plagiarism is directly, cop- you know, directly copying code and like direct like. So I'd say that, like, generally speaking, we exist in this world. There's a lot of innovation that's happening around Uniswap. There's a lot of interesting design patterns 
we're learning from them. We're also having our own ideas and we're like converging on what we think is the optimal AMM design. And I, I don't know like the specific features. I, I, li- I don't even know if CrocSwap is open source yet. I, I don't know the specific features of, of that protocol. Um, yeah, I, I, um, yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, it was something like, whatever they had used some technique for one problem and then you guys had borrowed the technique to a different problem it wasn't like apples to apples or anything like that and i think the two people are friendly um but you know again it's like i think they had um one of those licenses um uh, whatever it was that yeah the copyleft one where um if you use it then you should be also copyleft again they didn't, yeah. you guys didn't copy it exactly. So that doesn't apply yeah. really. Um, yeah. but anyway, I just saw so many people talking about it. I figured we should just address it. Yeah. Um, there was another, there was another one where there was like, um, that came up like also the fact again, a lot of people want to be like, Oh yeah, we, in, but, um, there was like one that came up where like, there was like an MIT version and a GPL version of a library. And like, we linked to the GPL version, even though there was an MIT version and the MIT version we could have. And so we like, you know, accidentally linked to the wrong version. But like, so there's like, there's things like that that come up. We like always appreciate like, you know, these types of things. But at the same time, like, uh, you know, we also like some of the, like we've been like, V4 is built on ideas that we've been like trying to build for like five years, right? It's like, it's not, it's not. Um, and and we've tried to learn from the best smart contract patterns in, in the industry, but uh, there's no, no, no specific accusation I've seen felt, feels like it's had any, any real weight. Yeah. So Sam Kamesian of Frax tweeted, underappreciated benefit of all pool tokens living in a single contract in UniV4. Every stablecoin's blacklist function is effectively dead. And I saw that in the replies, um, Columbia Business School professor Austin Campbell said that this poses the risk that the U.S. could put a freeze order on Uniswap V4 or blacklist it. I don't know. Have you looked into that risk? And is this something you're trying to mitigate for? Uh I don't think that, I think that like things like this, like people, USDC is a token that has a blast, blacklist function. Like they could already be like, you know, they could already like blacklist any Uniswap pool. Um, this idea is definitely that like, oh, maybe you like the, you to blacklist one, you have to blacklist all of them. But I think that like m- the way that USDC blacklist has been used historically has been always to like, you know, targeted at individuals, not at like entire, you know, pr- protocols, right? Like technically like, you know, it could like also, like mess with like, you know, MakerDAO or, or Aave. And um, I, I don't think that this is like, you know, they're, they're like, it, it, this sort of idea of like, um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, to me, it doesn't feel like there's any like categorical difference here from like what's already been out there in the world. Like there is some like, oh, it's like harder to be like more targeted at specific Uniswap pools or something like that. But you could still like freeze like USDC for any like user who would want to withdraw from their Uniswap. Like, and again, it's not, I, I don't know. I, I think it's like, it's like a funny observation, I guess, in a sense, but it's not like a, in my mind, it doesn't really change the like fundamental, you know, dynamics of what, what is possible and isn't possible with the USDC uh, blacklist. I think it's like about the same in, in some, in some capacity. I don't know. Okay. So now I have a question For sure. and um, you I'm sure are very well aware that U.S. regulators are looking at ways to regulate DeFi. And one of the suggestions that we saw like potentially making its way through Congress last fall was the notion that the front ends would be regulated. And when I was, you know, learning about kind of these hook contracts and everything, I couldn't help but think, oh, could a hook be used to implement like KYC AML? And 
you know, maybe that might require us to have like blockchain based identities. So it could be like super far in the future, but I just thought, oh, is that like something that hooks could be used for? Like, is it possible to create, um, I mean, it's, it's like trivially possible to create pools it, for what it's worth. It's already trivially possible to create pools that require KYC. Like you can create a token and the transfer function requires KYC. And then only people will only be able to swap with that token if, uh, if, if they are KYC. So like, that's already that, a, like, that, a, yeah. Cause there's already, already KYC yeah. D- DeFi. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so like, yes, you could instead do it within a pool instead of within a token. I don't think there's like, again, like, I don't think there's like a categorical difference in terms of what is possible. Um, I think that maybe like, is it more gas efficient? Maybe it is. I don't know, but it doesn't like, that doesn't to me seem like a, like a, a meaningful, like, uh, like, like difference in like capabilities in terms of like what, you know, how regulation plays out. That's obviously very, you know, that's, that's like a separate thing. And I think that like, there's no, like, I don't think that there's like a direct suddenly Uniswap V4, like it's like categorically different in how it interfaces with something like that. I'd say that like, you know, yes, it is possible to create hooks that do that, but I don't think that like, it's, it's also possible to create pools. In fact, people have already created pools that do that historically. People have created tokens with whitelists that, you know, and created pools on Uniswap with them. And, like those have existed for actually that those there were ones that existed back in the V1 days that did that. Um, oh, interesting. There was uh, that project uh, Realty. Uh, it was like real estate. They were tokenizing like houses and they created a whitelist and you could only, you know, we, I don't think we like, anyway, they're, they're, long, story, long story short, there was like, there have been projects that have been playing with this concept since like the beginning of time or since the beginning, like for, for a long time. But like, I don't think V4 is different on, on that front. Um, it's like always been possible. It's okay. N- it's never been like hard coded into the protocol as a, a requirement. I think it's like a DC. It's like you know, I get, I, mean, I see Uniswap like I see Ethereum, like I see the internet. It's like a decentralized piece of infrastructure that you know that you can that can that can you you can do a lot of things with, and you can definitely like it's you can you can both break the law on the internet and comply with the law <laughs> on the internet. The internet is the internet. And I'd say that like, you know, when you're building a product on top of a decentralized protocol, like you should definitely, like, like we obviously always like, you know, like there are a lot of things that we do in our front end to make sure that we're compliant with like the laws that, 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 you know, in, in the jurisdictions in which we operate, like we have lawyers, we, we, you know, we do things to protect our users, et cetera. And so I'd say that like, maybe the only thing that I'll touch on with like laws making their way through is like, generally speaking, what is a little bit uh, sad and unfortunate is that like, the U.S.'s approach to regulating crypto has been, you know, is, is has not been very, very thoughtful or very good. And it feels like the U.S. is like way behind other countries in terms of how they think about crypto and how they're approaching regulating it. Um, you're starting, we're starting to see like European countries, uh, you know, France, the U.K., like start to like try to understand DeFi and like study it and and be, be thoughtful around how they interact with it and, and what to do with it. And then you have the U.S. where it feels like it's mostly like political grandstanding, unfortunately. And are you thinking about moving to anywhere because you um, live in the U.S.? I mean, I'd say that like generally speaking, like I first of all, I mean, I, I love living in the U.S. I don't, I don't want to move. I'd say that like we do always consider like, oh, like should we ever open up an office somewhere else? But I'd say that like generally speaking, um, you know, Uniswap has users all around the world, right? The U.S. isn't the only country that exists um, as much as sometimes people pretend it is, and so like. 70% of our users are outside the U.S. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, li- I like where I live. Um, 
don't don't intend to. I I also you know uh, do do my best to you know. I, I just I I you know I, I don't feel like oh I'm like in like legal danger living in the U.S. because I you know am very <laughs> thoughtful about the legal risks I take on. And people get very mad at me sometimes when you know our company makes decisions uh, based on you know managing our legal risk. But sometimes sometimes mm. got to do it. Yeah. So um, we've alluded to this throughout, um, but it does seem that you know, the way this is going, other projects that might have thought of building their own automated market makers might instead now just build on Uniswap. And, you know, because of all the customization and everything, it sort of feels like it could become kind of like the Amazon of this type of activity, you know, this sort of like everything store for anything swap space. So I was wondering if you thought that would affect the core principle of decentralization that crypto is built on. Uh, Look, I think that, you know, I, I don't, I don't really, no, I, I don't think so. I think that like, look, anyone can always, you know, compete with it. Anyone can always like, you know, uh, build an alternative AMM system. I'd say that like the ability to customize more with it. Like I'd say that like, if people are using Uniswap because it is better than alternatives, it's not really like an automatically essential. Like the, the, the important thing is that like, you can compete with it. The, you know, the, like it's definitely, I'd also say that like, there is a difference between like the types of powers, like, it's still like the cool thing about Uniswap V4 is it's still an immutable smart contract, right? Like, like even though like it might gain like momentum and traction and network effects, like that doesn't give like me, Hayden Adams, as like the person who created the company that did a lot of the initial development of it, I still don't have the ability to like steal everyone who uses its funds, right? Like I still don't have the ability to like prevent someone from, like I don't have the ability to prevent someone from using Uniswap V4. Like someone Thank can God. build a project on top of Uniswap V4 and I, you know, and uh yeah other you know uh too soon i guess but I, other um like like the, the sort of like fundamental like what matters is like the fundamental properties right like ethereum great gaining market share relative to other l1s doesn't like centralize the industry necessarily i'd say that like it's you know in some ways like the bigger ethereum grows like the more decentralized it is and so i i i don't think that like you know in a world where like i had a secret backdoor to uniswap like maybe that would be really bad um I think that like generally, I mean, not maybe that would, that would obviously be very bad. Um, and that would be a very centralizing force, but I'd say that like the protocol, you know, in its sort of, in the sort of like decentralized state that it reaches and the sort of way that the smart contracts are immutable and, and all of that, I think is like, um, if, if it continues to gain in, in market share and in growth, like it doesn't automatically mean greater centralization because there's no like single person who has, you know, inherent control over the system. And so yeah. Uh, yeah, there actually, are, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. such a good point. I just realized you're right. Like it, it just creates like, um, almost like, God, I'm not a biology person. So hopefully an environmental person listening to this won't get mad at me, but, but like, I think of like, like certain ecosystems or, you know, like you go into like a forest where there's moss everywhere and you just imagine like there's all kinds of activity happening on that. So it kind of creates like some sort of habitat for like all different types of developers and whatever to, to build on. So, um, all right. Well, Hayden, this has been such a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much. Where can people learn more about you and your work? Uh, yeah, people can learn, um, about me and my work. I guess I'm, I'm often on Twitter, Uniswap, uh, Uniswap on Twitter at, at Uniswap, uh, Uniswap.org. Um, you can, uh, read about the protocol, contribute to it at, uh, you know, in, on our, on the Uniswap GitHub. You can download our mobile wallet if you like mobile wallets. Uh, 
you know, Uniswap Wallet um, launched recently. Um, but yeah, learning about our work, just, you know, uh, listen to this podcast episode you already finished, I guess. <laughs> um, listen to other podcasts I've done recently. Read our blog. Um, I don't know. Yeah. All right. It's been a pleasure having you on Unchained. Yeah, it's, it's been great being here. Probably shouldn't wait five years until <laughs> the next time. Yes, we'll have you back sooner. Yeah, it's my fault, not, not yours. I think. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Hayden and Uniswap V4, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Kevin Fuchs, Matt Pilchard, Zach Seward, Juan Aranovich, Sam Shriram, Ginny Hogan, Jeff Benson, Leandra Camino, Kim Jumdar, Shashank, and Margaret Correa. Thanks for listening. Thank you.